We're going to look at um, Ezekiel chapter 15, short chapter. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to add a, a, a New Testament counterpart to it. It's kind of the practice I did for many, many years. And I don't know how I got out of that practice, but I did. But um, my practice was in the morning. If I had a New Testament text to show the Old Testament counterpart in the evening to have a new old testament text new testament counterpart just to show the continuity and unity of scripture um so tonight we'll look at ezekiel 15 and then i think what we'll do is we'll jump over to james 2 and you'll see essentially what we're looking at in ezekiel 15 is fruitlessness and then when you come to that the principle of it is um is is faith without works which is fruit fruitless fruitlessness excuse me Ezekiel 15, uh, verse 1, God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of branch of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both its end and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it's intact, it's not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it's charred, can it be still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I've set my face against them. Though they've come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. So that'll be the text. And James 2 is going to show us what we're looking at. Um, it's verse 14 to 26. This is the business of, of uh, faith without works, which is why we read the little section on good works. And if we had read some of the other articles or paragraphs in chapter 16... We have been saved not by our good works, but by Christ's good works. But we have we have been saved unto good works. But none of our good works are meritorious. But nevertheless, they're requisite to show that we have living faith. So James 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you say to them, go in peace... Be warmed, be filled, yet you do not give them that which is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. Abraham believed, uh, The scripture was fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out from another way? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So James there in verse 23, keeping with Pauline theology, says our, our faith justifies us before God. And the way that we reconcile the James and the Paul is that our, our deeds justify our faith before man. I'll talk more about that in the body of the sermon, perhaps, but let's pray. 
Again, Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your care, your provision for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you abide within us. You counsel us when we need counseling, which is all the time, and you lead us and comfort us when we need comforting, which is constantly, and you convict us when we err, which we we err constantly, and we're thankful for your loving guidance and direction. We pray, O oh God, that as we see your displeasure, Father, with a fruitless people, that we would not be fruit, fruitless people, that we would bear your fruits, Holy Spirit, in our lives as a testimony that we have been joined to the living Christ, bearing love and joy and peace, peace and patience and every other good fruit. Uh, we pray these things in the Redeemer's name. Amen. So back to our Ezekiel 15. And as I like to do, it's a historical narrative, so I always like to kind of keep a, uh, a running connection with the previous passage. If you remember from Ezekiel, I want to say we split the chapter in two. Chapter um, 14, 1 through 11. And I think the final section was something like 12 to 26, something like that. And um, we're, we're, we're in an extended section. I used to know, maybe it was to chapter 24 um, in, in the book of Ezekiel. It's dealing with Jerusalem. So the first major chunk of the book is expressly prophecies directed to Jerusalem. You remember this is during the Babylonian captivity. People of God are taken away in three successive waves to Babylon. They're actually going to be brought back. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the repatriation. They're being brought back to um, to Judah in three successive waves. That's what's going on. Jeremiah writes during this time. Uh, Isaiah writes just before this time, I think, 800, something like that. And uh, Daniel also is a contemporary. So in chapter 14, that last section... God again and again and again. I told my wife, I bet you don't know what I'm preaching on tonight. She said, I bet you I do. I bet you it's judgment. <laughs> so in chapter 14, God promises to send judgment upon Jerusalem. And there he uses a word that he uses again here. He says, you've been unfaithful. Again, bringing up the idea of an unfaithful wife to a faithful husband. And God there promised to the people of Jerusalem through the prophet Ezekiel that he was going to destroy Jerusalem and I would say for their rampant, unrepentant, um, defiant sin, especially the sin of idolatry. I, idolatry seems to be the sin that just was so addictive to to um, to uh, the people of God and it revealed their apostasy. But that was, so that was the bulk of chapter, the section in chapter 14. Then at the very end, uh, God promised to save some. You remember, he says, you're all a bunch of uh, unfaithful apostates and I'm going to judge you. But at the very end, he says essentially, but not all. Uh, I'm going to save some. And I'm going to take some of you out of this unfaithful people and I, I won't condemn you or I won't give you over to the judgment. I'm going to have mercy on you. And then I'm going to bring you to the Babylonian captivity and I'm going to use you as a token of my grace and my mercy and my loving and my, my, my kindness. So we're, we're, we, we see both of those things, the promise of judgment and then the promise of mercy. And I recognize that the promise of judgment looms a little bit larger. I've mentioned that before. That's true. Um, 
The Bible is preeminently a book about mercy, a book about salvation. I understand the Bible does say that God will also judge those, but that's what we looked at. The promise to judge some, the promise to, uh, to save some. And then what we have here, again, is God is going to give additional reasons to the inhabitants of Jerusalem why he will, in fact, judge them. So again, this is really, again, touching on judgment, but he kind of keeps peeling back the onion and he says, this is the reason you've been the unfaithful wife. This is the reason you've been the idolater. You've bowed down to the sun. You've done all of these things. So what's interesting that God does throughout the book and certainly here is something that the flesh often charges God wrongly and says, you're punishing me unjustly. You're too harsh. You're too severe. You're wrong in your judgments. And that's wrong. (laughs) That's wrong. God repeatedly reasons with the people. Here are the re- here are the reasons. Here are the reasons. And God is so exceedingly slow. We're talking hundreds of years. God says hundreds of years earlier, you will go off into captivity, you hundreds of years. And the people of God just go on in their sin. And then someday God does in fact bring the judgment, but he's very slow in it. He's very deliberate. He tells the people exactly why he's doing what he's doing. And they, don't, they really don't have a just cause to argue with him because he is correct in his judgment that the people of God, by and large, had become apostate. They were unbelieving, by and large. This is a Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. This is a Luke chapter 18. Will the Son of Man find faith in the church when he comes back? The love of many in the church will grow cold, Matthew 24. So God gives here in chapter 15 additional reasons why the judgment's going to come. And you say, well, why would God keep going from chapter to chapter to chapter? This is like the parent who says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to discipline you. And I know there are rules of thought that say, well, the parent should only say it once and then immediately the hammer should come down instantaneously. I don't know. I mean, the older I get, if I was a parent right now, I mean, I am a parent, but if I was a parent of a baby right now, I, <laughs> I would be so much different. So slower, so gentler, so kinder. If God gave me a little baby right now, that little kid, I, I, I would never do that. I, I would never do that. Because it doesn't seem to me the pattern of God. And God is giving here as he gives time and time and time. There's room for repentance. That's the whole purpose. God is giving room for repentance. This is what this is meant to do. So if God was merely in the... Uh, judging business he would just bring the hammer down like so many professing christians want to do and another thing that he does here is not just to give the additional reasons but what he's doing is in chapter 15 uh, 15 16 and 17 he's really giving these i think chapter one of them 17 maybe uses the word allegory he's using figurative speech symbolism and so he's illustrating what israel is like what Judah is like by these various illustrations. In chapter 15 is an easy illustration. The, in, it even says it in mind. The, 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 uh, uh, the editors of your Bible probably put, Jerusalem is like a useless vine. Now, that's not by the Holy Spirit. It's by our editor, but that's exactly what the illustration is. So God has given multiple reasons. Now it's gonna, God is going to illustrate what Israel is like. And he says, you're like a vine, but you're like a useless vine. You're not bearing good fruit, as we'll look at that as we go through. And then in chapter 16, 
chapter 16 is going to be a doozy. I don't, I don't know whether I'm going to jump over chapter 16 or not. Chapter 16, the beginning of it, I really love that passage where he says, I love you and you're unwanted and your beauty is my beauty. I like that. Maybe I'll preach on that. But then the rest of the passage, God is going to go on to show the reason he's judging Israel is because she's the wayward wife. So here, Israel is a useless vine. Chapter 16, she was a wayward wife. And then I want to say back in chapter 17, in chapter 17, he's going to revert back to agricultural figures. And these are agricultural people. And so this would make sense to us. It's very much like Jesus. When Jesus uses his parabolic language, many of Jesus' parables, Jesus is the vine. He He uses the agricultural figures applied to himself and we as branches. So very, very common, Israel, agricultural people, and um, Old Testament, New Testament. And so that's what's going on. He says, the reason I'm going to judge you is you're a useless vine. You're not bearing any good fruit. That, that's the notion. Um, fairly straightforward passage. But what I see behind that is what we, what we glean from James 2. When, when he's saying, I don't see any good fruit on you, that means good works. There are no fruits of love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience, those kind of things. So there's no deeds of love, words of love, those kind of ideas. And that's why we read, James says, you're going to say to someone, oh, God bless you, be warmed. But wait wait a minute. Wasn't there, there, wasn't there a commensurate deed with that? In other words, if you had extra beans in your pot and the brother was starving, God is looking to you to give them your extra beans. Martin Luther says, we don't need good works. Our neighbor needs our good works. And I think that's exactly right. So we, again, we have not been saved by our good work. We have been saved by Christ's good work. We've not been saved by our law keeping. We've been saved by Christ's law keeping and law of satisfaction. But as Machen, the founder of our denomination said, we have been saved unto law keeping. We have been saved unto good deed doing. Read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 8. Classic, classic. By faith alone, by faith alone, gift of God. And then it goes on in verses 9 and 10. But not only have we been chosen in Christ and God given us the gift of faith, God has predetermined the good works for us to do. So true Christians are going to manifest their true faith by good deeds. So if a Catholic says to us as a Protestant, well, you all don't believe in good, good works. Of course, we have a whole chapter on, on what we believe the Bible teaches about good works, which is essentially holy fruit, which is what God is, is displeased with when he looks at his people and say, hey, we're, we're holy in the Lord. And God says, wow, I, I don't see any love. I don't see any patience. I don't see any kindness. I don't see you going into prison and giving a cup of cold water or visiting the sick and those kind of things. I don't see any of that. And God's looking for it. So for us as believers, if we say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he's my life, then God says, okay, let's see some, where's some holy fruit in your life? And we looked at a number of things that our brother led us in our, in our, in our uh, uh, um, confession of faith. Those holy fruits, we, if we are the vine, Jesus, if we are attached to Jesus, those holy fruits do a number of good things. And we'll talk about that as we walk through the sermon, but that's the figure. The, the figure of Israel as a vine. Super common. So if you were raised in any kind of church and you hear John 3.16 and they don't even tell you the address, it's John 3.16, any kind of church. You know, oh, that's John 3.16. 
there are some Bible passages that are so common. What's the, what's the most common uh, psalm in the entire Bible? Psalm 23. All of us love Psalm 23. I melt every time I hear or read Psalm 23. It's, so God uses language that's, that's ordinary or customary to his people. And he says, I'm going to tell you you, 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 you vine or you vineyard. And immediately the people of God would have said, oh, oh, that's us. God does this constantly. Isaiah, no, yeah, Isaiah 5. I'm going to read some places where God will say, this is my vineyard. And when you hear Isaiah 5, maybe 1 through 10, something like that, I want you to note in your mind all of the wonderful things that God does for his vineyard. He doesn't just take a vine and just throw it out in the swamp somewhere and say, well, you're on your own. I hope you produce something good. No, no, no. That's not what God does to his, his, his vine. And that's part of the reason why God is so displeased when he says, I've done all these wonderful things for you and I don't see any holiness in your life. So Isaiah 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is the vineyard of God. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good groups, good grapes. Excuse me. That's what's the problem behind Ezekiel 15. He did all these wonderful things. I gave you fertile ground. I took out the rocks. I put a, a tower in the middle for the, the vine keeper to come in and to do his pruning and so on. And um, I came looking for good grapes, but I found only worthless ones. And then he goes on to say, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. And what he says here in Isaiah 5, he's actually going to do in Ezekiel 15. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I'll lay it waste. It won't be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. I'll charge the clouds to, to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So God is looking at his people. We're to be made holy in Christ. Those with a forward-looking faith. Us with a backward and a forward-looking faith. And God, remember when, when um, John the Baptist was coming, preaching repentance to the people of God, Israel. He said, they, he said repent. And then he said, produce the fruits keeping with righteousness. That's what God is looking at. So when God looks at his people, whether it's Old Testament people certainly or New Testament people, he hears the profession of faith that we make in the Lord, but he's looking for the fruits of righteousness. Show me holy fruits. Without sanctification holiness, no one will see God. And that means if you have no sanctification holiness, that means you have no justification holiness because our sanctification flows from our justification. And so if someone says, I am a true believer, I can give an orthodox profession of faith. I hope you can. I hope you can. And then people ought to be able to, to, to see in your life and to hear from your words, holiness. Holiness ought to come out of us. Justice ought to come out of us. Kindness ought to come. I, I keep harping on that. Our country, I think sometimes 
modern Christians think it's the holy, the holy, the zenith of, of holiness to be persnickety and fight with everyone. Um, I, 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 I don't see that in the Bible. We are to be kind and loving and gentle. We are to be the people that overcome evil with good. Well, everybody's going to trample on us. Yes, the Bible says that. And we're supposed to overcome their evil. How? With good. And that's what God is looking for. We are to look like Jesus. We are to, to produce fruits of righteousness. And that's what God is looking for. And God gives us all of these wonderful benefits. He says, you're my vineyard. I give you my word. I give you my sacraments. I water you with my spirit. And now I'm looking for holiness. We as Christian people should look look markedly different. And I realize we still have the remnants of sin and the world of flesh and the devil. But that's what he's looking at. And another place where God speaks to Israel as a vine is in the book of Hosea. And remember, God is saying, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. Oh, wayward Israel. Oh, sinful, unrepentant Israel. And, and, and obviously he judges for sin. And in, in, in Hosea, you remember, God tells Hosea to marry a woman, Gomer. And Gomer is a figure, or she'll stand in the place of Israel. You remember what Gomer's job was? Gomer was, uh, was, a, was a prostitute. And, and, and God said to, to Hosea, your wife is my wife. And, and then he's going to speak about the wife the unfaithful woman in Hosea 10, also as this fruitless vine. But I want you to to see the figure of this vine that's supposed to produce the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and holiness, but it doesn't. And God's going to paint a picture of what the vine looks like instead. Hosea 11, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself, but it's not the fruit of holiness. It's the fruit of worldliness. It's not the fruit of godliness. It's the fruit of selfishness. So this is the people of God. God is looking for his own image in his people, but he's not finding it. And so it's not an emaciated people that he finds, physically emaciated. He's looking at a people that outwardly are very luxurious. And what they're saying is, what do you mean he can't find fruits? Look at all the luxury. But that's not what God's looking at. God is not looking for us to be outwardly luxurious or outwardly producing some kind of, I don't know, money, health and wealth, those kind of things. God's looking for the fruits of morality, the fruits, the fruits of holiness, the fruits of righteousness, the fruits of repentance, all of those things. Israel is a luxury vine. The more his fruit, the more altars he's made, the richer his land. Do you see what, see what he's doing? He's saying outwardly, I'm doing great. But the problem is inwardly, morally shriveled. And the better his land did, the better he made his sacred pillars. His heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. And so the people of God showed that they are apostate by lacking the spiritual discernment to know when they were in a state of um, physical or, or spiritual strength or spiritual decline or spiritual weakness. They looked at their outward and said, we're healthy and wealthy, therefore spiritually we're well. And I think it's the church of Laodicea, maybe Revelation chapter 3, it is the same thing. We're healthy and wealthy, therefore spiritually we are fruitful. But that's not true. 
And so God calls them. And here's the in Isaiah, Ezekiel 15, it's the same idea. I won't read it to you, but in Matthew 21, maybe if you get some time this week, Jesus has a whole extensive parable there in parable 21. Remember he says, um, the owner of the vineyard sent sent worker after worker after worker to his vineyard to, to get the fruits. And every worker, that the, 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 the people in the vineyard, they took the worker and they abused him. And then he said, well, I'll send my own beloved son and, and they'll, they'll respect my own beloved son. And then the people of the vineyard, remember, they're supposed to produce fruits of righteousness and love and gentleness and kindness. And what did they do to, instead? They said, ah, this is the son of the owner. This is the heir of the vineyard. We know what we'll do. We'll kill him and then we'll get the vineyard. And so that's obviously a picture of the Jews who God did all these wonderful things for. And instead of producing these wonderful holy fruits in their lives, they tried to kill Christ and did in fact kill Christ. And then you remember what Jesus says to them. He says, what will the owner do to those wicked um, people? And the people said rightly, he'll, he'll come and destroy them and he'll give the vineyard to others that will produce the fruits of righteousness. And he said, that's exactly right. And the Pharisees were mad because they knew that he was speaking against them. Matthew 21 is Ezekiel 15. God is looking for good deeds in the life of the believer. Holy fruit righteousness, love, all of those kind of things. And it's not, it doesn't have to be big. Think of Judgment Day. Think of Judgment Day. On Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus doesn't depict it merely as, well, you will be condemned for your fornicating and your drinking and all those things. If you die apart from Jesus, those things will be true. But he doesn't say it that, that way in Matthew 25. What does he say? It. You're going to be judged for lack of good deeds. So many Christians, and this is sad, our view of the holiness of the Christian life is anemic. It's, 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 it's sickly. It's not right. It's, it's far too small. In other words, we think like this. We think that God is only looking for us to not do the negatives. Just be the church of the don't do's. Well, I don't cuss, or at least I don't cuss so people catch me or hear me. Okay, check. Don't cuss. I don't get drunk at least not so I'm like slur really bad. I just drink until I get that warm feeling in my belly. Check, I do that. Uh, I, I, I don't do, I, I, don't, I don't commit adultery on my wife, at least not so she gets me looking at another woman. Check, I don't do that. I'm just the church of the don't do's. And we think, well, look at that. I don't do any bad stuff. I'm good, I'm golden. I'm a holy, godly Christian. Oh no, oh no. We have not been saved in Jesus Christ to be the church of the holy don't do's. Yes, we should stay away from all the... Yes, yes, yes. All of, stay away from all those bad things. But Christianity is much larger. God is looking for positive holiness. Good works. It's just not the absence of bad works. God is looking for the presence of good works. That's what this chapter is saying about. I came looking for not the absence of bad works... In the absence of bad fruit, I came looking for the presence of good fruit. That's a radically different thing. And, and this, this, is, this is where you think, well, what do you mean? Well, I, what I mean is this. 
If you've experienced the love of God, the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, here would be an expression of something, a positive good that God is looking for. Forgive people like God has forgiven you. Forgive people that have sinned against me because of God forgiving me when I sinned against him. Yeah, yeah, like that. Do like that. Whoa. But no, I just won't get drunk today. No, great. You shouldn't get drunk. But God is looking for the positive good fruit. God's looking for that. And so that's what we see here. It's much larger than what we think. This is why God commends the church. You gave a cup of cold water. It doesn't have to be, well, I, I don't have 50,000 bucks to, to build the wing of the whatever. No, that, that, that's silly anyways. Do you know someone that needs a cup of cold water? And then go to them in the name of Jesus Christ and say, you know, I love Jesus so much and I saw that you needed a cup of cold water and I had an extra jug of water and God bless you and if I can be in any help for you, I, I pray for you and your kids and, and, and God bless you. That, that's what God is looking for. We think we should have precise theology. I, I love systematic theology. I like dogmatic and systematic theology better than so-called biblical theology. Is, tends, the other one tends to be more speculative. So I like being very precise. I like that. Christianity, the essence of Christianity is not fighting over, over fine points of theology. Yes, our theology should be very, very fine. But it's, this is a James. You say that you're justified by faith alone. Yes, good, good, good. Show me your, by your good works. What, what do you mean, show me? Do you ever go to the prison? You see the old lady across the street? You know the old lady across the street that can barely make it to her, her, her mailbox? Do you ever go over and bring her trash bucket to her door? Because she can't barely take it. And you, you see her every Thursday. And, nah, 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 I don't see you. But you see her every Thursday. Do you ever just go over and just bring the trash bucket there? What do you mean? Are you talking works righteousness? Like if you slipped a, a disc and now you're preaching? No, no, I'm not. No. You will know them by their what? By their fruits. Positive. Not just the absence of the negative. Yes, the absence of the negative, but not just that. A lot of Christians, professing Christians, satisfy themselves, I'm just not this bad X, Y, Z. Have you done any good? Forget who said we should do good in our generation or something like that. Have we done any good? Are there people that we can show physically, orally, verbally, the love of God in Christ? Can we? So, boy, howdy, I have a difficult time on the job, a difficult time in the house. Well, then can you show positive patience, joyful, Christ-like, Job-like patience? That's a good fruit. That's a... That's what God is looking for. That's a good deed. That's the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That kind of a thing. That's what God is looking for. And so when we see this, it's not to merit our salvation. It doesn't justify us before the Lord. Only faith in Christ justifies us before the Lord. But our good deeds, which is what, what's absent here. God says, I don't see any holy fruit. There's no holy fruit. If there's no holy fruit, it means we're not joined to the holy root. That's what's going on. So when you see folks who say, I'm a believer, we ought to be able to, I'm, we're not the infallible fruit inspector, but Jesus does say that you can look at their, 
if you look at a person, I'm reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on marriage in preparation for someone's marriage. But I'm reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on marriage. And he, he, he remarks about two folks that were in his church that previously they were not Christians and they had a horrible marriage. And they became Christians and God transformed their marriage. And he argues it's only by truly knowing and loving and experiencing Jesus Christ that you can even really even begin to understand what marriage is. And he says it's such a, a wonderful testimony of what God... He, he makes this statement, God is just not about saving us from hell and saving us for heaven, but God is, does everything for us and shows us how to live in this life. And he, he talks about that, the kindness of the husband and the wife to one another now in Jesus. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's what God is looking at. So if we are believers, just taking that one example, people ought to be able to walk into our homes, observe us as a husband and a wife, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we look at one another, the way that we speak of one another, when the other person's not there to other people. And people ought to say, wow, boy, that, 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 that fellow or that gal... Man, their marriage is something different than I'm, I'm just not used to that. And, and what's the difference? The difference is Christ. So when we're looking at good fruits, it's everywhere. Everywhere. How we interact with one another. When someone, you know, we get so perturbed or we think everything revolves around us. Oh, they didn't give me the, the deference I'm due and they're, you're, they're dishonoring me or they're shunning me. No, no. What about this? What about thinking, wait a minute, maybe that brother and sister is dealing with so many difficulties that we have no idea what they're dealing with. Maybe that's why they're scowling. They're not scowling at us. They're just weighed down. And maybe, maybe we could write them a nice note. You know, I just if there's anything I can do, let me know. You know, I'm, I'm praying for you. That kind of a thing. And so... Yes, we should be precise in our theology. But again, J.C. Ryle, man, I, I cannot recommend him enough. He says people might not understand the precision of our theology, but they are not going to miss those good deeds. They're not going to miss the gentleness. They're not going to miss the kindness. They're not going to miss the long-suffering, the love, the mercy. They're not going to miss that. And God's looking for that. And Martin Luther's right. Maybe he says, you don't need the good works. Your neighbor needs the good works. And that's what God is looking for. We should be, we should be that holy Christ-like people. And when we're not, it only means that we're not joined to Christ. Or we're only joined to Jesus Christ formally. That's what this is. These people were joined to the Lord, but formally, by circumcision or by mere profession. And, said, and, and what formally means, there's no, there's no Jesus coming out of us. Where's the love that God has for his people? And the longer that we are, what does Jesus say? I'm the vine, you are the branches. If we're joined to Jesus, we're supposed to produce fruits of holiness. And I know immediately someone's going to say, well, you're a legalist or you're this or you're that. I don't think I am. I don't think I am. We should be able to see the difference. And even in our own lives, and our, our confession gets it right, so it testifies that we have true faith. It testifies we truly are in a state of grace. That works to our assurance. And I don't mean we walk around and think, boy, 
that was a good one I did over there. That was pretty good. Boy, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't mean that. But what I mean is when we're trying to love people with the love of God in Christ, when we try to patiently endure a hard situation for the love of Jesus, when we try to do those things, the Holy Spirit inside of us testifies to us, you're doing this because you love God. You're doing this because you want to please God. You're doing this because you want to bless that person over there. And that adds to our assurance that we're in a state of grace. And that's a good thing. So it's not we're not waiting for some special mystical experience. Um, J.C. Rowell's against that too, which I think he's right. People waiting for some cataclysmic experience, boom, to happen. He says, no, no, it's not like that. It's usually very imperceptible and very small. A cup of cold water, a visit, a ride to the church by a person that can't give themselves a ride to the church. That's what it is. That's what it is. A prayer for someone that is just beyond praying for themselves. A prayer for someone's son or someone's daughter, that kind of thing. And then sitting with those who mourn and mourning with those who mourn, that kind of a thing. It testifies that we belong to Jesus Christ. And also, one of the things, and I know it's kind of a, kind of, I'm trying to wrap it up with the idea of what the good fruit, the good deeds really do for us and for the church. We are so open to so many criticisms. And I mentioned uh, one of the, the, the atheist philosophers that I was watching last week. He gave some just criticisms of the church. I don't like it because it comes from an unbeliever. It's kind of like if someone who's not your family member criticizes your family, even when they get it right, you don't like that, right? You know what your mom or dad's like? Yeah, I know what they're like, but I don't want you telling me what they're like. You know my mom, you know you're not my brother or sister. We can only squawk about mom and dad together. You can't squawk about mom and dad because you're not family. That's kind of how I feel about this guy. He squawked against the church, and since he's not a lover of Jesus, even though he was right, I was a little, I was a little hurt. My feelings were hurt. All that to say this: we have so many warts as Christians, so many legitimate warts. We we stumble and fail legitimately. Any, anybody with any kind of vision, unbelievers, can clearly go, oh, look at you. And they do. And they do. And what's the charge of us? You're all hypocrites. Nope, nope. We're not all hypocrites. There are some play actors. Most of us are just not glorified yet. We still sin. But what about this? What about when the unbeliever says, oh, You forgave that person when they were so abusive? You patient? I go into people's homes and I'm just like, I can't believe what the Lord is doing. Look at the long-suffering. Look at the patience. Look at the Christ-likeness. Look at the, the, look at the tangible expressions of love for loved ones. I mean, I've, I'm there supposedly to minister to you, but you all minister to me. I can see that. And unbelievers can see that. Look at that man sticking with his wife through thick and thin. Look at the wife sticking through the man through thick, thick and thin. Look at them working through some of the hardships. Looking, look at them struggling along, but shining for it. You see what I mean? And so, yes, when we're a poor witness, it gives reason for the, the unbeliever to, to, to rejoice at what a bunch of schnooks we are. But it's the opposite when we're loving and when we're when we are the guy in the public's line or whatever line and we 
and this, the poor person's having a hard day, and we're not that. Can you believe them? Can you believe them? When we were like, maybe they had a bad day. You know, God, take it easy. If the person says, I'm sorry, I'm falling apart, so take it easy. It's a grace business. Don't worry about it. And people think, well, that's not normative. No, no, because we're supernatural. And my point with that is the good deeds, the good fruit, the holiness, the Christ-likeness, it's a platform to other people that Jesus Christ really does transform sinners into saints. And it takes away the charge of the devil against the Christian as a hypocrite. You're just nothing like, you're, you're just, just like, no, that's not true. We're just not like you. That, that's not true. The fruits of holiness, the fruits of righteousness, the, cru- the fruits of Christ-likeness shows that it is not true. Yes, there's warts, and we acknowledge them. But beloved, look, even in this church, even in this, this church represents so many brothers and sisters serving so many other brothers and sisters, one in another, and then looking beyond. And, and beloved, that's a platform. And the, the last thing it does, which is really the best thing it does, when we produce fruits of holiness because we love Christ, because he has loved us, what does that do as regards to Jesus? It glorifies him. It honors him. Even in the little things, there's no little fruit. There's no little good deed. You know this as a mom and a dad. When your little kiddo comes and says, here's some little whatever, some silly thing, and they, they mean it as a token of love and kindness and goodness to you because they love you. And it looks, I don't know, silly, squiggly. What's the heart of the mom? It's huge because of the love of the mother and the love of the child. And we should think of that. Don't think, well, it's just this little, no, no. Our lives are a token uh, of our love. They're little, but in the sight of our God, huge because of the love that he has for us. Beloved, I pray that they'll know all of us by the fruits of righteousness and it would glorify God and it would assure us that we belong to him. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.